Are you addicted to coffee? Do you like true crime? If so, come check out our podcast, Caffeinated Crimes. Every week, we research a different true crime case and sit down with a cup of coffee and exchange our thoughts. From Ed Gein to Lizzie Borden to the suspicious death of Keith Warren, we cover a variety of stories. You can find us on your favorite podcast app or at caffeinatedcrimes.com. He frantically looked around the back seat for something to soak up the two beers he had consumed earlier that evening, but found nothing. That is when a second idea formed in David's mind. He quickly and aggressively ripped out the crotch of his underwear and shoved the cloth deep into his mouth. As he began to chew, he felt a huge sense of defeat. There was no way he would be able to stomach that butt cloth he had partied in all. Didn't that story just shake you to the core? Would you like to hear more? Then you've come to the right place. I'm Trevin. And I'm Amanda. And we're the hosts of Seriously Sinister, a true petty crime podcast. Each week, we take a dramatic dive into real-life petty crimes. They may make you laugh or cry, but they won't be like any other true crime stories you've heard. Follow Seriously Sinister wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome to True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm your host, Elise. Every other week, I'll share a true crime case from my hometown, the Pacific Northwest. And sometimes, my cat Winston joins me. This podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and crimes against animals and children. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome back to the show. Today, Winston and I are bringing you the next episode in our series on missing persons in the Pacific Northwest. We'll be covering three cases from the state of Washington, as well as three cases from British Columbia, Canada. As always, tip and law enforcement contact information for each of these cases can be found in our show notes for this episode. Before we get into today's cases, we have a couple of quick announcements. First, at the time of this recording, we're only four reviews away from our 2022 goal of 50 Apple reviews. If you enjoy our podcast and haven't left us a review yet, please consider doing so. We'll be eternally grateful, and if you send us a screenshot of your review, we'll send you some TCCL stickers. The second item of business is about Winston. You all know and love her, so we're asking you for a huge favor. Winston has entered the Season of Justice Pet Photo Contest in the Best Smile category. She's currently in second place, about 70 votes behind the frontrunner. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that works to help law enforcement with DNA testing in cold cases. Each vote for Winston is just $1, and the money helps fund this DNA testing, which is a win-win for Winston and the true crime community. We'll include a link to Winston's voting page in our show notes, but you can also find the link on our social media pages as well. You can vote for Winston through July 11. The last item of business is about Winston too, but it also includes myself. We want to do a Q&A episode for you guys so you can get to know us better and really just bring you guys something lighter to listen to. So please send us questions you want us to answer about Winston, myself, the law, the podcast, really anything you're interested in. You can DM us on social media or send your questions to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com. We hope to get the episode out to you guys in mid-June, so feel free to send in your questions through the last week of May. Okay, with all that housekeeping out of the way, let's get into our cases for today. 
we're going to start in Washington, more specifically the town of Issaquah. David Adams was born on January 26, 1960. He was the second oldest of six kids. Unfortunately, there's almost no background on little David's life before he disappeared. At the time of his disappearance, David was just eight years old, a third grader at Clark Elementary School, and the town of Issaquah was a booming lumber and mining town, very rural. May 3rd, 1968 was a normal day. David went to school, and then he rode the bus home. After David got home, he then headed over to a friend's house to play. He was told to come home at 5 p.m. David later called his mom from his friend's house and asked if he could stay a little bit longer, but she told him no. So David left his friend's house and took a well-known local trail as a shortcut to get home. After about 15 minutes, David's mom called his friend's house to see what was taking David so long to get home. She kind of assumed he'd just stayed a little longer, even though she told him he couldn't. But David's mom quickly learned that David had actually left his friend's house after he'd gotten off the phone with his mom. This was immediately concerning because if David wasn't at his friend's house and he hadn't come home yet, where was he? David's mom didn't hesitate in calling the police to report him missing. Police immediately began searching the areas around David's home, the friend's home, and everywhere in between. There was no sign of David. The original investigators at this time, in 1968, theorized that David had either fallen down a mine shaft or he was attacked by a cougar. There was no evidence to support either of these theories, but then again, there didn't appear to be any evidence of foul play either. Basically, David just vanished into thin air. And that's where David's case stood until it was reopened by the cold case unit in 2011. It quickly became clear to the cold case investigators that detectives in 1968 didn't exactly explore investigative leads they could have at the time. There were several tips about a 20-year-old neighbor that detectives never looked into. The man was supposedly a Vietnam veteran, and he also helped search for David during the original investigation. After they conducted additional investigative efforts, Police now believe that this man was the last person to see David before he went missing. He was allegedly in the area just minutes before David went missing. I read in at least one source that the trail David took as a shortcut actually took him past this man's house. Back in 1968, dogs supposedly tracked David's scent to the man's house, but neither David nor his body was found there. And even though this is highly suspicious, because there was no physical evidence linking the man and David, detectives in 1968 seemed to have just ruled the man out as a person of interest or a suspect. The man also allegedly failed a polygraph test in 2011. In 2013, cold case detectives again contacted the neighbor and subpoenaed his phone records. Police were now calling the man a person of interest but they have declined to publicly name him as he's never been charged with anything and David's case remains open. According to police, though, the man doesn't have a convincing alibi and he has since failed, quote-unquote, many polygraph tests. The man claims that the reason he failed these polygraphs is because he felt, quote, nervous and stressed, end quote, while he was being interrogated. The man is now in his 70s, living in Lewis County, Washington, and he maintains his innocence. Police believe David's case is solvable, even after all this time. If you have any information on the disappearance of David Adams, please contact the King County Sheriff's Office at 206-296-0970. Our next case takes us south of Issaquah to Vancouver, Washington, which sits along the Oregon and Washington border. This is the mysterious and unexplained disappearance of Kimberly Kersey. Kim was born on December 15, 1968. 
She was the oldest of three kids. Her parents were divorced, and Kim and her siblings lived with their mom, but their dad lived not that far away. Kim was described as smart, with a contagious laugh and smile. She loved Billy Idol, and her dad described her as, quote, very tiny and petite, but tough, end quote. Kim was a senior at Mountain View High School and was 18 years old at the time of her disappearance. She was last seen leaving the high school on March 11, 1987. Kim often made the two-mile walk from school to her house, but sometimes she'd hitch a ride with a friend or her dad. But on March 11th, it appears that Kim was headed home on foot. She had plans to attend a basketball tournament in Tacoma with her boyfriend after she got home from school. But sadly, Kim never made it home. The next day, March 12th, Kim's textbooks and school papers were found in a wooded area near her home. But there was no sign of Kim. Investigators strongly suspected foul play was involved in Kim's case, but not a lot of information has been released to the public. What we do know is that police have two primary suspects, but I have absolutely no idea how or when these two came onto police's radar. The first suspect is a man named Russell Stanger. Stanger is currently serving a life sentence for murder. He was convicted of murdering a woman after she disappeared while out on a walk not far from where Kim was last seen. As far as I can tell, police haven't charged Stanger with any crimes related to Kim's case, but of course that doesn't mean that they're not trying to put together a case against him behind the scenes. It's unclear from my sources, but it doesn't appear that there was any connection between Kim and Stanger or Kim and the murder victim. It really seems like Stanger was zeroed in on because of the proximity of where he killed his victim and the circumstances involved in both disappearances. The second suspect is an unidentified man who used to live two blocks from Kim's apartment complex in Vancouver. The man has a criminal record for child molestation and has since left the state. It's unclear whether the man knew Kim or what exactly made police consider him a suspect. Sadly, Kim's mother died of cancer in 1996. She never had the opportunity to find out what happened to her daughter. Kim's father and youngest sister are still alive and continue to keep Kim's case in the media in hopes that someday they'll get answers as to what happened to Kim. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Kimberly Kersey, please contact Detective Lindsay Schultz at 360-397-2028. The next two cases take us to our neighbors up north in British Columbia. First, we'll head to Revelstoke to discuss the disappearance of a 19-year-old girl over Labor Day weekend. Then we'll head to Hogsback Lake to tell you about a 20-year-old woman who vanished while camping over Memorial Day weekend in 2011. But first, let's take a quick break to tell you about our partner for this episode. Hi guys, Winston wanted to pass along this recommendation herself, but she's had a hard day answering emails and writing letters, so she's taking a nap. So I'm going to tell you about today's small business recommendation, the Catnip Calico. The Catnip Calico is a mother-daughter duo who make cat toys in Portland, Oregon. Shop owners Laura and Cassidy opened their Etsy shop in October 2021. Both Laura and Cassidy have been fostering kittens for cat adoption team since 2011, and they've always enjoyed making blankets and toys as comfort items for the kittens to take with them when they go to their forever homes. One of my favorite things about the catnip calico, besides the insanely cute toys to choose from, is that Laura and Cassidy donate a portion of their sales to local animal rescues in the greater Portland area. Similar to Winston and I, Laura and Cassidy choose a different rescue every quarter to donate their proceeds to. They've donated to Cat Adoption Team and Northwest Animal Companions so far, and they've chosen Hazel's House as their recipient for April through July. And of course, we can't forget to mention the amazing toys themselves. Winston recently ordered the Rainbow Cloud, a crinkle cat, and the cutest mermaid cat, all filled with catnip. 
She's absolutely obsessed with them, and I find them all over our house. Laura and Cassidy are truly talented and crafty. Their cat toys are ridiculously cute and well-made. Head over to Etsy and search The Catnip Calico to find their shop. We'll also include links to their Etsy shop and their Instagram in our show notes. Brianne Wolgram was the only daughter of parents Cheryl and Cliff. She had two older brothers, Todd and Troy, but they'd both moved out, so at the time of our case, it's just Cheryl, Cliff, and Brianne in the Wolgram home. Brianne was described as soft-spoken, but once you got to know her, she was fun and outgoing. According to her friends, Brianne was kind to everyone. She loved playing sports and working out. She dreamed about going to college, traveling, getting married, and having a family. You know, all the things teenagers think about after they graduate from high school. While Brianne was figuring out her life, she was working two jobs. One was part-time at McDonald's, and the other was a full-time position at a gas station on the Trans-Canada Highway in Revelstoke. On September 4th, 1998, Brianne worked a late shift at McDonald's and then hung out with some friends after she got off work. It appeared to be a normal night from what I can tell. It appeared to be a normal night from what I can tell. The next day, September 5th, was a Saturday, and Brianne was scheduled to work at the gas station from 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. So Brianne went to her shift as planned, but her coworkers quickly noticed that something was off about Brianne. According to these coworkers, Brianne was a lot more quiet than usual, and at some point during her shift, she broke down and started crying. She never told any of her coworkers why she was so upset. But Brianne worked her full shift and got home shortly after 7. She'd seemingly put whatever upset her out of her mind. Brianne's parents planned to go to a barbecue that night, and Brianne had made plans of her own for the holiday weekend. She was going to take a little nap and then head to a party with her best friend, Christy. Christy also worked at the same gas station, but she was working a later shift than Brianne on that day. So the plan was for Brianne to pick up some wine coolers and then grab Christy after she got off of work around 11.15. Once Christy and the wine coolers were secured, the two would make their way to the party. Christy and Brianne set up their plan over the phone around 9 p.m. At around 11.20, after she'd gotten off work and hadn't been picked up yet by Brianne, Christy called Brianne's house to see if she was still there and maybe running late to pick her up. This, of course, was before the age of cell phones, so Christy couldn't text Brianne or reach out to her on social media like we can today. Brianne's parents were home by this point, and they spoke with Christy when she called. They told Christy that Brianne wasn't at home. Although they didn't say this to Christy, Brianne's parents could see that her car was gone, along with her keys and wallet, all of which you'd expect to be missing if Brianne were going out that night. So it appears that Cheryl and Cliff were vaguely aware of Brianne's plans for the evening and were kind of under the assumption that Brianne had left the house to go pick up Christy. But now they knew that wasn't the case because Christy was waiting at the gas station and she hadn't heard from Brianne since their earlier phone call around 9 p.m. My sources said that a missing persons report was filed on September 6th, and I assume that meant the early morning hours of the 6th after Cheryl and Cliff spoke with Christy and maybe tried calling around to other friends of Brianne's to see if they'd seen or heard from her. But that's all speculation on my part. At least four witnesses claim they saw Brianne on the night of September 5th at a 7-Eleven between the hours of 11 and 11.30. According to those witnesses, who were described as knowing Brienne, quote-unquote, personally, Brienne wasn't alone at the 7-Eleven. She was seen talking to three different women outside the convenience store. No one was able to identify the women, but they did provide descriptions of them so police could create composite sketch for release to the public. Unfortunately, no one ever identified these women, nor did the women themselves ever come forward. And part of the problem was that the composite sketches weren't consistent. There were at least three different sketches of each of the women floating around, and there weren't many consistencies amongst the various sketches. 
police hit another dead end in the case after learning there were no security cameras at the 7-Eleven. Now, I know it might be hard for some of you to imagine this being true, but Brianne's disappearance was pre-9-11 and the war on terrorism, all of that. So surveillance cameras, traffic cameras, none of those were really heavily used at the time the way they are now. According to Brianne's mother, Cheryl, her daughter suffered from seasonal affective disorder, also known as SAD. Despite this diagnosis, Cheryl was adamant that Brianne wasn't experiencing any symptoms at the time of her disappearance, and she wasn't suicidal, nor did she have any reason to run away. So where was Brianne? On September 10th, five days after Brianne went missing, her black 1989 Acura Integra with gold rims was found in a large ditch off a logging road approximately 30 minutes from Revelstoke. The car had quote-unquote minor damage to the front driver's side, the passenger side door was ajar, and the passenger side window was rolled down. Investigators felt it was possible that the car had hit a nearby tree, but they couldn't say that for sure. The car was described as dusty, which made it nearly impossible to lift any usable fingerprints off of it. There's a lot to unpack about Brianne's car, but let me start by saying this. Brianne wasn't found with her car. So police wouldn't give details about how they thought Brianne's car ended up in the ditch, but they did tell her family that they believed Brianne's car had been in this location since Brianne went missing on September 5th. That opinion was based on both the amount of dust and the lack of disturbance of the dust, as well as the heavy foliage around the car that was also undisturbed. Let's talk about what else was found outside the car. A pack of cigars, a can of Budweiser, and an empty air freshener package. Now, since these items were specifically mentioned in nearly all of my sources, I have to assume that the RCMP believe they're connected to Brienne's disappearance. Otherwise, I don't feel like they would be worth mentioning. There was also a partial footprint found in the dirt right outside the car. The RCMP was able to determine that the footprint was from a size 11 men's boot, but they weren't able to take a cast of the footprint. So now let's talk about what was found inside Brianne's car. First, the keys were in the ignition. Second, Brianne's driver's license, wallet, and $200 in cash, the proceeds of her recently cashed paycheck, were all found inside the car. Also found were a beach towel, a pack of cigarettes, and a six-pack of wine coolers. So apparently, Brianne did stop and get the wine coolers, but somehow she never made it over to the gas station to pick up Christy. Police couldn't get any DNA from inside the car because the texture of the seats made it impossible to retrieve any DNA or fingerprints from the surface. Police searched the area where the car was found and ended up finding a witness who claimed to have seen Brianne walking alone on the road where her car was found in the early morning hours of September 6th. Unfortunately, there has been little movement on the case since Brianne went missing in 1998. Every year on Brianne's birthday, her mother lights a candle in honor of her daughter. Brianne's bank account remains untouched and she left behind all of her belongings. The three women Brianne allegedly spoke to on the night she went missing have never come forward and haven't been identified over 20 years later. If you have any information on the disappearance of Brianne Wolgram, please contact Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477 or email tips, T-I-P-S, at mcsc.ca. For our next case, we head eight and a half hours north of Revelstoke to the town of Vanderhoof. This is the mysterious and unexplained disappearance of Madison Scott. Madison, who I'll be referring to as Maddie for the rest of this episode, was born on April 29, 1991. She was the middle child in her family and had one older brother 
and one younger sister. Maddie was described as, quote, vibrant and free-spirited, end quote. Her mother said Maddie was a, quote, wonderful, messy, creative, and loving aunt to her nieces and nephews. She worked as an apprentice heavy machine mechanic with her dad's logging company. May 27, 2011, Memorial Day weekend, started off as a normal day for Maddie. She had lunch with her mom, and they texted the remainder of the day until around 11.30 p.m. Maddie had made plans to go to a party at Hogsback Lake near Vanderhoof to celebrate a friend's birthday. So Maddie packed up her white 1990 Ford F-150 with her tent and her sleeping bag, and she headed off to the party. As often happens with parties, word spread quickly, and there were at least 50 people at the lake, and some of them didn't even know Maddie or the friend whose birthday they were celebrating. At some point during the evening, a fight broke out. Maddie retreated to her tent when the fight was going on at around 12 a.m. Maddie's friend Jordy got injured, and she tried to get Maddie to leave with her and her boyfriend around 1-ish, but Maddie was already in her sleeping bag and really didn't want to pack up her stuff and leave. I also read in one source that Maddie was concerned about drinking and driving and wanted to do the responsible thing by staying put. So Jordy and her boyfriend left Maddie at the campsite. Eventually, by 4 a.m., everyone else had left the campsite too. Everyone except Maddie. It wasn't clear to me, but I assume Maddie was asleep at this time, and that's why she didn't leave with everyone else, but I wasn't able to confirm that anywhere. Jordy returned to the campsite on the morning of May 28th to get the rest of her stuff she'd left behind the night before. This was around 8.30 a.m. on her way to work. When Jordy got to the campsite, Maddie's truck was still there, and it was locked with Maddie's clothing, purse, and inexpensive camera inside. Maddie's tent was open, and her sleeping bag and quote-unquote other things were thrown around inside the tent. Maddie's rings, which she supposedly never took off, were found outside the tent, but there was no sign of Maddie. Maddie's mom, Dawn, tried calling her daughter on the 28th, but the call went straight to voicemail. But service at the lake could be spotty, so initially Dawn brushed it off. But as time went on that day and there was still no word from Maddie, her parents started to get worried. It was out of character for Maddie not to be in touch with any of her family. So Maddie's parents drove out to Hogsback Lake to look for her. They talked to several people including some friends of Maddie, but no one had seen her. They, of course, found the campsite in the same state as Jordy had found it hours earlier. Maddie's tent and sleeping bag were still there, her truck was still there, and Maddie's expensive motorcycle gear was left at the campsite. There were no signs of a struggle at the campsite. But Maddie's parents quickly discovered that her iPhone and keys were missing along with Maddie. Her parents called the RCMP, who got to the lake around 12.30 p.m. Extensive searches took place around Hogsback Lake. Divers even searched the lake itself. And just for reference, Hogsback Lake is approximately 128 acres, and there are privately owned ranches within one mile of the lake. There are 10 campsites at the lake, and the lake itself is 22 feet deep. The RCMP officially suspended their search for Maddie on May 31st. By that point, they'd questioned everyone who was at the party on the night of May 27th. Most of the 150 party attendees took polygraph tests, and Maddie's friend Jordy took several polygraphs. Apparently, there was blood found in Jordy's sleeping bag, which the RCMP eventually learned was Jordy's own blood from an ankle injury that night. Although the RCMP eventually cleared Jordy as a suspect, there's still a lot of people who think Jordy may know more about Maddie's disappearance or was involved somehow. During the course of their investigation, police learned that there was a second party on the evening of May 28th. Maddie's younger sister was actually at this party, but she said she didn't see Maddie there. 
She initially didn't offer up this information because she was underage and didn't want to get into trouble. According to Maddie's phone records, her iPhone, quote, stopped connecting to the tower, end quote, around 8 a.m. on the morning of May 28th. Cell phone records also showed that Maddie received an incoming call at 12.30 a.m. on May 28th from a young man, quote-unquote, known to the Scott family. As far as I can tell, the identity of this man has never been made public, and it's unclear if he was ever considered a person of interest or a suspect by the RCMP. But it doesn't appear that Maddie's family believes he was involved with her disappearance. The RCMP looked into a man named Fribion Bjornsson, who went by Frib. He may have been a friend or romantic interest of Maddie's around the time of her disappearance. Frib had a history of drug abuse, but police eventually cleared him as a suspect after he voluntarily took a polygraph and passed. Tragically, Ferb was found murdered a couple weeks after Maddie went missing. He was allegedly killed for money as he just cashed his paycheck on the night he was murdered. The RCMP don't believe there's any connection between Maddie and Fribb's cases. According to the Facebook page for Fribb, a man named James Charlie pleaded guilty to manslaughter in the death of Fribb in September 2020. A CBS News article stated that three other people were also charged in connection with Fribb's murder. According to Fribb's mother, in February of last year, 2021, Charlie received 18 years for manslaughter for the murder of Fribb and two years for a stabbing he committed while in prison in 2020, both of which would be served concurrently. With time served and a one and a half year credit for some of the years, Charlie still had seven years, three months left on his sentence in February of 2021. Another possible theory people have offered is that Maddie was a victim of the Highway of Tears serial killer or killers. The Highway of Tears, aka Highway 16, is just up the road from Hogsback Lake. According to an article by CBS News, quote, Since 1969, at least 18 women have gone missing or have been murdered in this area, end quote. At least one investigative reporter who's looked at the Highway of Tears cases believes that Maddie's case fits the same pattern as some of the cases that are on the official Highway of Tears list. But Maddie isn't on that official list as of 2022. The RCMP don't believe Maddie just walked off somewhere, although they do believe that whatever happened to her, she did leave willingly, likely on her own, given that her phone and her keys were missing along with her. The Scott family is offering a $100,000 reward for information leading to the whereabouts of Maddie or her remains. You can contact the Vanderhoof RCMP with tips by calling 250-567-2222. For our final British Columbia case, we head about 10 hours south of Vanderhoof to the city of Vancouver to tell you about the mysterious and baffling disappearance of Nick and Lisa Massey. Now, you're going to want to buckle up for this one because it's a wild ride from start to finish. So, let me start by telling you about the Masseys. Husband Nick was a well-known and respected investment banker who'd been working for the Bank of Montreal for 37 years. He'd been married once before Lisa and had a son, Nick Jr., and a daughter, Tanya. Lisa was also married before she met Nick, but it doesn't appear that she had any kids of her own. Nick and Lisa met while Lisa was working as a hairdresser. In 1994, when our story takes place, Nick was 55 years old and Lisa was 39. According to friends and family, the Masseys led low-key and secluded lives. Lisa continued working at the hair salon six days a week and even took private clients in the couple's home. Nick and Lisa associated with the quote-unquote rich and powerful while Nick was working for the bank. But just because they were associating with these people didn't mean that they were on the same financial level as them. Nick was making about 
$85,000 a year, which in 2022 is closer to $165,000 a year. And the couple lived in a modest home, but that home was heavily mortgaged and the couple had about $70,000 in credit card debt. About eight months before the couple disappeared, Nick Massey retired from his investment banking job. According to those who knew him, he was starting a new venture as director of a startup company called Turbidine Technologies. Nick's daughter Tanya had moved to the Netherlands in the summer of 1993. After the move, she had weekly calls with her dad. But according to Tanya, her dad started acting really strange after Christmas of 1993. Again, according to Tanya, her dad started becoming more secretive and she noticed other out-of-character behavior. The most concerning behavior she noted was that her dad told her he couldn't call her on her birthday in April because he was quote-unquote going away. But Nick wouldn't tell his daughter where he was going or why. The family wouldn't learn until several months later that Nick and Lisa had gone to the Caymans. The RCMP would later confirm that the couple saw a lawyer while they were in the Caymans and they had wills drawn up. The Masseys also opened a bank account in the Caymans and deposited $50,000 worth of stocks into their account. So let's talk about the last time Nick and Lisa were seen. The couple made plans to meet up with a potential investor on August 11, 1994 at Trader Vic's, a popular restaurant in Vancouver. According to investigators' records, the reservation was made for four people, but no one ever showed up and no one ever called to cancel the reservation. Those who knew Nick said that this was odd because he didn't miss appointments and he would have called to cancel the reservation if something had come up. The RCMP would later learn that the last alleged sighting of the Masseys was at the Garden Lounge, which was next door to Trader Vic's. According to witnesses, the couple shared a bottle of wine and were in the lounge from around 6.30 p.m. to 10.30 p.m. And the couple hasn't been seen since. There were some potentially suspicious phone calls placed by Lisa on August 11th. She made two calls from Nick's phone, one to her boss and one to Nick's business partner. She told both men that the couple was going to be gone for a few days. This wasn't immediately suspicious to anyone because they just assumed the couple was going away on a little vacation. So there was definitely a gap in the couple being reported missing because no one actually knew they were missing right away. Lisa's sister Loretta was the one to alert authorities after she started getting suspicious about Lisa not returning her calls. So after a few days, Loretta went to the Massey home to see what was going on. She found the couple's car was still in the driveway and it was unlocked. The front door of the house was closed, but it was also unlocked and the alarm system had been disabled. The Masseys left behind their passports and their poor pet cat who hadn't been fed in days. When the RCMP showed up to the Massey home, they found no signs of a struggle, but they did find two cut zip ties on the floor. When the RCMP got involved, they learned about the supposed business meeting on August 11th, the state of the Massey's finances, and the couple's trip to the Caymans just six months before their disappearance. The RCMP also learned that Nick was a personal banker for Harry Mole, who was the founder of Pine Ridge Capital Group. In 1992, millions of dollars went missing when the business collapsed. It was a huge scandal, and Mole eventually ended up relocating to the Caymans. And according to witnesses, Nick seemed quote-unquote distraught at a funeral he'd attended the day before the couple disappeared. And later that night, he turned down an invitation to watch fireworks with some friends. Nick's son hired a private investigator shortly after his dad and stepmom went missing. This private investigator doesn't think the Masseys are in the Caymans, although he was able to confirm the bank account the Masseys opened was still open and had $100,000 in it, which had been deposited through a third party. 
The private investigator believes the couple is still alive and he continued to pursue the case even after his relationship with the family ended. He believes the Masseys planned their own disappearance. He described Nick as a quote-unquote very shrewd banker who was highly respected by his clients and others on the stock exchange. The RCMP has never been able to identify the potential investor that the Masseys were supposed to meet on August 11th. The RCMP has said they believe the Masseys, quote, fell victim to a crime of some sort, end quote, but they don't have any suspects and they don't appear to have any idea what exactly happened to the Masseys. There haven't been any confirmed sightings of Nick or Lisa since the day they went missing. Some have theorized that the Masseys were in witness protection because of an upcoming trial that Nick was set to testify in. A former tennis partner of Nick's was accused of stealing $100,000 and Nick was going to be a witness. But the RCMP confirmed that Nick's testimony was relatively minor and it was unlikely that he or Lisa would need to be placed into witness protection related to that case. Nick Jr. and Tanya are offering a $50,000 reward for any information that leads to the discovery of their dad and stepmom or their remains. If you have any information or tips to provide, please contact the North Vancouver RCMP at 604-985-3311. And before we get into our last case, I want to remind everyone that we have a Facebook discussion group where we post about the cases we cover. And we always want to hear your thoughts on the cases, but we especially want to hear what you guys think happened to Lisa and Nick Massey. Were they murdered? Did they join witness protection? Or did they stage their disappearances as part of some elaborate scheme? And if so, what were they trying to get away from or leave behind? Let us know what you think. Our last case is going to take us back to Washington, just north of Seattle, to the Tulalip Reservation. This case has been on my list to cover since Mary Johnson went missing in November 2020. Mary is an enrolled citizen of the Tulalip tribe. Unfortunately, she's one of many missing and murdered Indigenous women in the United States and Canada. We'll get more into this issue as we go through what little we know about the circumstances of Mary's disappearance. Like a lot of Indigenous women, Mary and her three sisters grew up in the foster care system. Her sisters Nona and Jerry described Mary as a, quote, spunky, lovable jokester, end quote, who was adored by everybody. She was a good person to be around, and she loved picking pears and cherries with her nephews. According to her sisters, Mary was a talented artist, she loved cats, which, same, obviously, and she had a quote-unquote vibrant personality. The last time Nona saw Mary was around 2017 at their mother's funeral. Several months before Mary went missing, she and her husband were living with Mary's other sister, Jerry, in Cedra Woolley, which is about an hour north of the Tulalip Reservation. According to Jerry, Mary left quote-unquote abruptly and moved to Marysville, which is about 40 minutes from Jerry's house, but only 15 minutes away from the reservation. After Mary moved, she rarely answered Jerry's phone calls and only occasionally responded to her texts. This was troubling because Mary was having problems with her now-estranged husband. The couple shared a home together, but Mary was staying with various friends at the time of her disappearance. She would go to the shared home every few days to pick up her mail and shower. Mary was worried that her husband was going to move to California and take all of their belongings with him. So this is what's going on in Mary's life around the time she disappeared. So, unfortunately, not a lot is known about the circumstances of Mary's disappearance. I'm going to do my best to create the timeline from the little bit of information we do have. On November 24, 2020, Mary's estranged husband gave her a ride to a friend's house on Fire Trail Road. Mary brought a suitcase with her because she planned to stay the night at the friend's house so she could get a ride to the Tulalip Tribal Court the next day. Mary didn't have her own car, so she relied on friends to get around. 
The plan was for her friend to give her a ride to the tribal court because Mary wanted to get some legal advice about protecting her property and keeping her husband from taking it out of state. Mary's friend did take her to court on the 25th, but it was busy, and so Mary didn't actually end up talking to an attorney. So Mary made plans to visit some family in Oslo later that day instead. One of Mary's friends was going to give her a ride to a church on Fire Trail Road, where she would then meet another friend who was going to drive Mary to her final destination in Oso. Unfortunately, the first part of Mary's plans fell through. Her friend got annoyed with Mary and decided he wasn't going to give her a ride to the church after all. So Mary ended up walking there with another person. She was in touch with the other friend who planned to take her to Oso in the days leading up to her disappearance. This man didn't see Mary waiting for him at the church like they had planned, so he drove down Fire Trail Road until he saw Mary walking with the unnamed person. Apparently, Mary's friend assumed that the unnamed person was going to try and get a ride from him too, so he kept driving and then texted Mary that he only had room for one person in his car. This unknown person that was walking with Mary split off from her and she continued walking down Fire Trail Road toward the church. At 1.52 p.m., Mary texted her friend that was supposed to give her a ride to Oso to tell him that she was almost at the church. Apparently, either Mary didn't realize or misunderstood that the friend had ultimately declined to give her a ride to Oso. The next activity on Mary's cell phone was at 2.30 p.m. when she called a female friend. This friend told Mary that she was busy and couldn't talk to her right at that moment. Sometime later, the couple that Mary was supposed to stay with in Oso received what they called a quote-unquote desperate voicemail from Mary, quote, pleading with them to pick up the phone, end quote. From what I gathered, it seemed like the couple wasn't home at the time to answer the phone, and that's why Mary had to leave a voicemail. Mary never made it to Oso or the couple's home. Mary's estranged husband gave a typed statement to police on December 9, 2020, to report that Mary was missing. He told police he wasn't in close contact with Mary, but she usually got in touch with him, quote-unquote, every few days. That's when he told police that he hadn't actually heard from Mary for a few weeks. Her mail at their shared home was undisturbed and there were checks in there, which her husband knew that Mary usually cashed right away. According to Mary's sisters, Jerry and Nona, they had no idea that Mary was missing until her husband filed the missing persons report. Police were able to get a hold of Mary's cell phone records, but unfortunately, they didn't provide too many clues. On November 25th, cell phone records put Mary's cell phone in Snohomish County about 30 minutes from Oso, around 3 p.m. Then, at 8.30 p.m. on the same day, Mary's cell phone pinged off a tower near Marysville, not too far from the reservation. Mary's cell phone was then turned off on November 26th, and it hasn't been turned back on since. According to police, they've identified, quote, multiple persons of interest, end quote, but no arrests have been made, which police attribute to the difficulty in finding probable cause for search warrants. Both the FBI and the Tulalip Tribal Police are investigating Mary's disappearance. And before you start thinking that means that Mary's case is getting a lot of attention and they're bringing in the big guns, so to speak, that's really not the case. See, tribal lands, aka reservations, are a complicated maze of jurisdiction. Mary was last seen on the reservation, and this matters because of those jurisdictional issues. Tribal lands and reservations are their own sovereign entities, so state law enforcement doesn't have the ability to investigate Mary's disappearance. And jurisdiction with the federal government is complicated too. So even if state and federal law enforcement want to assist in an investigation or provide additional resources, their hands are often tied and they end up not being able to help in cases like this. As I mentioned earlier, the vast quantity of missing and murdered Indigenous women in the U.S. and Canada has been referred to as an epidemic. There is historic distrust of law enforcement by Indigenous people, 
which is true of a lot of people of color who have been oppressed. On top of that, Indigenous women are often blamed for their own disappearances, which results in a lack of empathy for the victims by both authorities and the general public. These women are seen as quote-unquote less than human and aren't considered part of the social fabric because they're removed from the mainstream when they live on reservations. All of these are systemic issues that need to be addressed in order to adequately protect and support Indigenous women. According to multiple studies, the murder rate for Indigenous women is 10 times the national average. In March of this year, Washington became the first state to create a missing persons alert system specifically for Indigenous women, similar to an Amber Alert for missing children. Mary's family put up a billboard requesting information on her disappearance along Interstate 5 near the Tulalip Reservation. In December 2021, the Tulalip tribe put an extra $50,000 into the reward fund set up by the FBI for a total award of $60,000 for any information leading to the whereabouts of Mary. Mary was 39 years old at the time of her disappearance. She has a sunburst tattoo on her right upper arm, as well as a scar on her nose. She also goes by the name Mary Davis or Mary Johnson Davis. If you have any information on the disappearance of Mary Johnson, please contact Tulalip Tribal Police at 360-716-5918. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. You can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com. The links for our social media pages are included in the show notes. You can find our discussion group on Facebook by searching for True Crime Cat Lawyer in the group section. And if you want more content, head over to Patreon to join one of our available tiers. You can get monthly mini and bonus episodes as well as early access to our main episodes. Finally, if you're interested in learning more about my co-host, you can check out her Instagram at WinstonTheCatPDX. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode.